Welcome and good morning. We're so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here today. I never, I never ever want to take for granted that anybody shows up on a Sunday. I'm just thrilled and I'm, I'm happy that you've chosen to worship here today. So they, they call it phantom pain. It's something that doctors refer to as a pain or an itch that an amputee may suffer uh, from a, a body part that's, that's been removed. So uh, some people, if they've had a hand removed, they still may feel an itching or pain in that hand. As a matter of fact, they may even still feel the fingers curling up. Same with a leg. Uh, it, it could be that if they suffered for a long time with pain in their leg, that that pain would continue long after that particular limb has been amputated. It's as though the discomfort that they felt gets locked in the brain, and as hard as a doctor may try, they have a very difficult time unlocking that pain or discomfort that a person suffered from that leg or hand or whatever it may be that has been removed. Dr. Paul Brand, he tells a story of his medical school administrator that went through something like this. His name was Mr. Barwick. He had this serious kind of painful circulation problem in one of his legs, and it was driving him crazy. He, he delayed getting the, the leg removed, but um, it, he just grew bitter. As a matter of fact, at times he would just start screaming, I hate it, I hate it, referring to his leg. And at some point he just said, I can't take it anymore. I'm through with it. He told the surgeon, take the leg off, and the surgery was scheduled immediately. <clears throat> but before the operation... He asked the doctor, what do you do with a leg after it's removed? And the doctor said, well, we'll usually scan it for biopsies, and we'll, we'll do a biopsy and scan it, and then we'll incinerate it. But he had a bizarre request. He said, I would like you to preserve my leg in a pickling jar. He said, I will install it on my mantle shelf. Then as I sit in my armchair, I will taunt that leg saying, ha, you can't hurt me anymore. He got his wish. He despised that leg, but the leg, unfortunately, had the last laugh. And Barwick suffered this phantom limb pain to a worse degree. Even though the wound healed, he could still feel this sort of torturous pressure and torment inside where that leg used to be. He had hated the leg with such intensity that it had lodged itself permanently inside of his brain. And that doctor, Dr. Paul Brand, he co-wrote a book with Philip Yancey, and he reflects on this pain that this man, Mr. Barwick, had, and he says this. To me, phantom limb pain provides wonderful insight into the phenomenon of false guilt. Christians can be obsessed by the memory of some sin committed years ago. It never leaves them, crippling their ministry, their devotional life, their relationships with others. They live in fear that someone will discover their past. They work overtime trying to prove to God they're truly repentant. They erect barriers against the enveloping, loving grace of God. I'm guessing that at least one or two but I'm thinking it's a whole lot more of us, still suffer some memory of something we did in the past. Maybe it's something that we're hoping 
No one's going to find out about. But see, and I love the way he says this, when we do that, it creates these barriers. It creates these barriers to getting closer to God. It's something that's speaking against us. It's something that may be telling us we're not worthy or we should shy away from the presence of God. Or it could be doubts that you're plagued with. Is this for real? This whole Christianity thing. Can I really trust the Word of God? So with those barriers, with those challenges, the subject I want to talk about this morning is how can we, with these barriers we struggle with, how can we draw closer to God? How can we draw closer to God? The passage I want to look at this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 4. And just going to look at three verses this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, uh, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace and find grace to help in time of need. You may be seated. So we're continuing this morning in the book of Hebrews. We keep seeing this repeated theme, don't stop believing. Persevere in this trust, this growing trust in God himself. And today we're going to talk through these three verses. And we keep seeing this theme of Jesus as a high priest. And he's going to expand on this more and more. So we'll talk first about what does it mean to hold firmly to the faith. And, and, and in that point, what difference does it make that we have Jesus as a high priest? We'll also talk about drawing near to God and how do we draw near to God. So we've got these two uh, very strong exhortations or encouragements, you can call them commands, that are given to us here in these three verses that we really need to understand and then practically talk through, okay, how do I draw near to God? How do I perhaps push through some of these barriers that have been set up in my mind and heart to God himself? So let's jump in uh, to this first verse, uh, verse 14. And uh, we, we see there that we're told to hold firmly to the faith, but it's because we have this great high priest it says, who's passed through the heavens. So what does all that mean? And last week, we started talking about this idea of Jesus being our high priest. Now, for most of us, you know, it's kind of like, okay, yes, so what? It, it's very hard to relate to this language of Jesus being our high priest. And we have to get into the shoes of the Jews and this audience to whom this letter was written. <clears throat> Excuse me these Hebrews, <clears throat> because most of us, you know, when I think of a high priest, I'm thinking of an old man with a long beard, kind of this, this Gandalf or Dumbledore-looking sort of guy. He had a staff in his hand. He's walking around with a, a breastplate. I mean, who, who does this, right? It's very difficult to relate to, but this was so important to that original audience. 
Because for them, the high priest meant access to God. The high priest was the one who went to God on behalf of the people of Israel. There was only one of these high priests, and he was able to enter into the presence of God himself. He'd go into that place. You know, the, the Israelites started out with this thing called the tabernacle, which was a really, really fancy tent that they could pull up. They could take, take it with them wherever they went. And then the innermost part of that tent was the Holy of Holies, again, where this Ark of the Covenant was, and God's presence resided there in a special way. And this priest on this one day, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur would walk in there and he would offer uh, sacrifices. He would actually sprinkle blood on top of the Ark of the Covenant. He would burn incense there. This is how he would atone for the sins of the people and his own sins. So he had this special access. So this was the people's access to God, but it was also how the people got answers from God. So the people of Israel, they often needed to seek, seek counsel from the Lord himself. So they did this through something called the Urim and the Thummim. And these were two rocks that the high priest kept inside of the breastplate, actually right, right over his heart. Somehow, and it, there's a lot of ideas on how this happened. There were, there were these rocks there. He'd pull them out. Some, some believe that there was one white one, one black one. Some believe that they were white on one side and black on the other side. But they could use these rocks and get answers from God. You know, if they were about to go to war or something like that and they wanted counsel from God, they would use these rocks. So this is how they would get their answers with these stones. Um... And it was this form of divination God allowed in the Old Testament. So this is how the Israelites received direction from the high priest using these two, two stones. The, the white one is the Orem, the, the dark one is the Thummim. So, now, now the thing about this is, like, only if you were really important could you go to the high priest and, and get, get your answers. Like, you had to be the king or somebody like that. You know, do we go to war or do we not go to war? So here's the new deal. With Jesus as a high priest, we now all have access to God for decision-making. It's not just this really important king or this high priest that could step in there to get answers. We can all do that. We can seek his direction because, see, as the passage says, I'll talk about this morning, he rose through the heavens. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And we can talk directly to him through prayer. The priest passed through a veil, but Jesus passed through the heavens. So we have this high priest now that lives in the presence of God all the time. As the text says, I want to unpack this a little more. It says he passed through the heavens. Uh, again, the priest went through a curtain. Christ was resurrected, and he passed all the way. And I, and I had a teacher that always, when we would talk about this verse, he'd say it this way, that Jesus passed. I'm just going to look, I'm going to look silly doing this, but because I love you all, I'm going to do this. <laughs> Jesus passed, and he would always go, through the heavens. He said he did that three times. Jesus passed through. Can we just do that together once? Through the heavens. Okay, now this is what that means. 
Because there wasn't just one heaven Jesus passed through. He passed through our atmosphere, right? The blue skies and the clouds, that's the first heaven. Through space, where all stars are and planets, that's the second heaven. But then there's this third heaven that he landed in. And that is the heaven where God resides, where he resides with God the Father. So that's what it means that he passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Thank you for doing that with me, not just <laughs> letting me hang there. To the third heaven. So what do we do with that? The end of verse 14, it says, Then let us hold fast to our confession, or hold firmly to what we believe. There was a concern on the part of the author of this letter that his recipients were dabbling back in Judaism. Remember, they're Hebrews, right? They're Jews. They had a, a system of doing things. They did it that way for a long, long time. Are they letting go of what they've been taught about Christ and starting to grab hold now of the old way of doing things? So he's saying, hold fast to your confession. You have a high priest, not in a temple, but in heaven itself, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And then in verse 15, we see that we have a high priest that is still special yet. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Now, what does that mean? How is it that Jesus who lived all these years ago, has been tempted in every respect as we have, yet without sin. I mean, he, he has been tempted to look at porn on his phone. Uh, he wasn't blind and, and he wasn't tempted to become bitter. Uh, so, so how is it that Jesus was tempted in every respect? What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus truly is the only one who took the full force of temptation, 100%. And let me, let me illustrate this. So there's this guy, his name is Blaine Sumner. I don't know if you've heard that name or not, but if you, if you saw the guy, you would immediately know what he's good at. He holds the world bench press record. He bench pressed 885 pounds. <laughs> I mean, to look at the guy, you can see, I didn't get a picture of him. You can tell he's got a very high bench press. Oh, 885 pounds and two ounces. Let me give him his full credit. Now, he is the only one who's been able to take that weight all the way down and push it all the way up. The only one. That means he is the only man who, who truly knows what it's like to feel 885 pounds go all the way down and go all the way up. He felt the full force of that weight. Anybody could get it, I could get it down, right? I'd probably break my arms and a lot of other things, but <laughs> I could get it down, but I would have no idea what that force felt like. Jesus felt the full force of temptation because he was tempted and didn't sin. He's the only person who's ever truly known what it's like to feel that full force of temptation, and he did not sin. Um, I, and I love the way one commentary states this. It may indeed be argued and has been that only one who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. Thus, the sinless one has a greater capacity for compassion than any sinner could have for a fellow sinner. 
He's the only one that truly knows how bad it can be, and yet he did not buckle under the weight of his temptation. So we have this high priest in heaven who knows what it feels like to go through my pain and yours. He's been tempted to give up. And by the way, I keep reiterating this. I just want to make it perfectly clear. Uh, if someone turns away from Christianity and, and just totally walks away from it, the scriptures tell us they were never saved to begin with. Uh, 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But at the same time, and in this we see this tension between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, there's a human responsibility to believe. I've met non-Christians, by the way, who seem pretty happy and well-adjusted. Jesus knows the temptation of being lured away from his Father's mission to try an easier way. That was the temptation that Satan put upon him. You can have all the kingdoms of the world right now. It's a difficult road, but there's no better way. Christ overcame all temptations, so he helps us overcome the temptation to give up on him. So we hold firmly to what we believe. Even when you're sitting in a science class and the teacher's telling you that Christianity is completely unreasonable. Even when you're questioning the veracity and the truth of the New Testament. By the way, I had to be taken through every little difference between every copy of the Bible out there, and they don't amount to a hill of beans. They don't change the gospel. Uh, I had to walk through all kinds of differences in the text in seminary, and again, it, it really doesn't amount to much. There was an original manuscript that the other copies came from. Someone may tell you the Bible is a book of fairy tales. You need to stop believing it. And you may even see the best of Christians commit the worst of sins. All of these things may be temptations to walk away. Jesus has felt the full force of temptation to walk away from his Father's mission. Hold firmly to what you believe. Then as a result of this, because we have such a high priest who sympathizes for us, we can draw near to God. We can draw near to God. This brings us to verse 16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Uh, to help in time of need. Um, now, first of all, this throne of grace. So how is God being portrayed? Well, he's on this throne that speaks of power, that speaks of authority. But then look at how it's described. It's a throne of grace. You know, if you always get this picture in your mind of God as, as, as angry and wrathful, then you're not getting Hebrews chapter 4. You're not getting this idea of him being on a throne of grace. This should give us comfort. God's forgiven the Christian. So let's start out with that first part of that verse. It, it, it speaks to how we draw near to this throne of grace. The text says to do so with confidence. A strong sense of that's where you belong. That's really what confidence is. Wherever you're at saying this is where I belong. 
This is how we approach the throne of grace. But again, like I was saying in the beginning, there can be barriers. We can have this sort of phantom guilt. And it can be over any number of things. Uh, whenever I was interviewing a First Baptist Church, they asked me what I thought the biggest problems were facing the church today. And without a doubt, the first thing I came, that came out of my mind, or out of my heart, my mind, my mouth, uh, was, was pornography. This is not just a men's problem, by the way. There are women who struggle with this as well. I was exposed at 10 years old uh, to porn. Me and some guys were out in the woods and we found a magazine. I knew this was something I shouldn't look at. And that was before the internet. That was before all the technology that's out there now. And it's a plague for so many men. There's a book that came out called Closing the Window, written by a guy named Tim Chester. And he shares these quotes from men who've struggled with the guilt and condemnation that comes with viewing pornography. And this is what men have said. It's made me want to hide from God. It makes me doubt my salvation. And then the depression comes, and with the depression comes temptation to sin again. I feel, and I put really bad in there. That's not what was in that quote, but I cleaned it up a little. Um, I feel really bad about myself. I don't feel worthy to serve God, and I don't believe I can break the habit. I feel dirty and able to approach God after looking at porn, so often I feel unable to come to Him in repentance, even though I know my sin is already dealt with. And I couldn't talk with God about my problems. My picture of Him was that He would accept me if and when I had scrubbed up enough. Without condoning the sin of viewing pornography, uh, that same author, Tim Chester, he offers these words of hope to people who are struggling with this. He says, Jesus lived God's welcome to sinners. He embodied God's mercy. He was known as the friend of sinners. The religious people didn't like it because it turned their proud systems of self-righteousness upside down. But Jesus sat down to eat with prostitutes, adulterers, and porn addicts. On the cross, God treated Christ as a porn user. When Jesus went to the cross, every single sin committed by man was pinned directly onto him as though he was the one who had done it himself. Every single sin was paid for on the cross. So when we come to God like this, what do we get? By the way, I put my email up there. If you're suffering uh, with an addiction like this, or if it, maybe it's just every now and then, you, contact me. Uh, we want to help. We want to help. We've got resources to help you get out of this addiction. So that's my email address. Uh, the, it'll, it'll come straight to me. Nobody else will, will see that email. But please reach out. Don't just suffer in silence. We want to help you. If you've been in my office, uh, there's a painting that you'll see. It's a little hard to see. This is called The Prodigal Son. It was, it was painted by Rembrandt. And if you know the story of The Prodigal Son, he, he lived a horrible life. He was living in his father's house. He wanted to get away. He said, give me my inheritance. I want to go do my own thing. He went and lived like crazy. Uh, then he ran out of everything, and he wanted to go back home to his father. And Rembrandt wanted to capture that moment 
when the son comes and falls at his father's feet. And it's the face of the father that is so moving. There's a priest by the, game of, by the name of uh, Henri Nouwen. Now, he was a Dutch priest who quietly struggled with same-sex attraction his whole life. And he, he sat and, and looked at this painting for a long, long time. As a matter of fact, he wrote a book about his encounter with this painting. But this is what he says about the face of the father. He says, but it is the father's features that mesmerized me in the Rembrandt painting. How could he paint such an enigmatic smile? Rembrandt's solemn scene of wondrous reconciliation paints the father's look with such utter tenderness, compassion, and love. See, this is how our loving father receives us when we've, when we've really screwed up. It's grace. It's giving us the good that we don't deserve. So when we come to God like this, what do we get? We get this mercy and grace that we need when we really, really need it. I came across a story of a guy who, uh, by the way, if you've ever played Monopoly, you know about the get-out-of-jail-free card, right? That's the golden card to have is the get-out-of-jail-free card. I came across a story of a guy who was, uh, this was in Minnesota, and he got pulled over for driving without a seatbelt, and the cop pulls him over, does a check, and finds out that there's actually a warrant out for his arrest. So in the process of getting frisked, what does he happen to have in his card? He pulls out a Monopoly card, get out of jail free. And the, the officers laughed about this. Didn't help things. Uh, he said that the card may have provided a few laughs for the law enforcement. The man still landed himself in jail. He said, though, we appreciate the humor and gave him an A for effort. Isn't it a relief that we don't have to rely on some kind of a card trick to get grace and mercy from God? As that writer declares, approach God's throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So I want to talk a moment then, well, how do we draw near to God? How do we draw near to God? A, a few things I want to suggest here. Um, first of all, get to church. Get to church, especially when you don't feel like it. If you're here, by the way, you're applying this. Hey, you started applying the sermon before you even left the building today. Uh, we don't forsake the gathering of ourselves together. You see, just being here together, praying together, worshiping together, singing truth together is important. There's something special about God's people, God's church, gathering together like we're gathering together here today. Um, it is, and it's not that just we worship together. We use our gifts that he's given us. All the gifts, if you look at the gifts that God has given the church, they're carried out in community. We hear the word of God preached. By the way, you're also teaching your kids to love the church whenever you get here. We're bearing each other's burdens. And I loved what Eric said in the beginning about this group we have called Life Together. Sometimes we show up and we minister to other people, and sometimes those people minister to us. We hurt along with each other. The only way you can do that is to be present with somebody. It's key to our walk with God. So keep coming, you know, and sometimes it's when we don't feel like it that we really need to be here. And then secondly, trust God's forgiveness. Trust God's forgiveness. 
Can you accept that you have been truly forgiven? It's not that we quit confessing our sins to God, but we're truly forgiven. And the Bible says that once those sins are forgiven, they're as far as the east is from the west. God lets it go. It's not being held against you anymore. It's done. But that can be so hard for us to get. There's a story that Garrison Keillor tells about who he calls Larry the Sad Boy. And, and Garrison Keillor, by the way, I, I think he's hilarious. He's got this show he did for a long time called Prairie Home Companion. If, you, if you've not known him, he's kind of a radio personality comedian. And he, was a, a, he calls himself a good Lutheran. Uh, he said, Larry the Sad Boy was saved 12 times in the Lutheran church. He said it was an all-time record. Between 1953 and 1961, he threw himself weeping and contrite on God's throne of grace on 12 separate occasions. And he said, this is a Lutheran church. He said, it wasn't evangelical. There was no altar call, no organist playing just as I am without one plea. While a choir hummed and a guy with shiny hair took hold of your heartstrings and played you like a cheap guitar. He said, this is a Lutheran church, not a bunch of hillbillies. These are Scandinavians. And they repent in the same way they sin, discreetly, tastefully, and at the proper time. Twelve times, he said, even we fundamentalists got tired of them. God didn't mean for us to feel guilt all our lives. He says, there comes a point, and I love this, there comes a point when you should dry your tears, join the building committee, start grappling with the problems of the church furnace, and make church coffee and be of use. But Larry kept on repenting. See, what Larry seems to be missing is a sense of confidence. Um, that what Jesus had done was once and for all. See, we confidently move into God's presence in prayer because of what Jesus did. It's not what we did. The only thing we bring to our salvation is our sin. We can trust this forgiveness. Not because of who we are, but what Christ has done. So trust that forgiveness. And then one more, get baptized. And this is for those who have not yet been baptized. I don't know who here may have not or who has all been baptized. I know some of you because I did the baptism. Um, but if you've trusted Christ as your, as your Savior, he has commanded you to get baptized. This is from Matthew 28. Uh, 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a key part of our discipleship. It's something we're commanded to do. You know, when we are baptized, it's a picture of being lowered down into the grave the way Jesus was and being raised up and resurrected the way Jesus was. We're identifying with Christ in his death and his resurrection. We're saying that we believe this too is going to happen to me someday. It's a, it's a public profession, a visible sign of an invisible grace. So if you haven't gotten baptized, guess what? Next month we're having a baptism. And uh, if you are interested in being baptized, just reach out to the church office. It's, uh, well, the, the, the email address should be available in the bulletin. I think there's a phone number there as well. But give us a call and we'll, we'll talk to you. Make sure you understand what it's all about. 
And I would love to baptize you next month if you've not yet been baptized. So putting this all together, uh, draw near to God as a dearly loved child of God. Draw near to God as a dearly loved child of God. Uh, if you're a basketball fan, um, you may have heard the name Scott Nagy. He's actually the coach of the South Dakota State Jackrabbits. By the way, the Jackrabbits lost to Michigan in the opening round. Be that as it may, I love what it was he told his team right before the championship game. This is what he said. I want you to play like your love. Play freely. Love isn't dependent on your performance. No matter how you play, you are loved. Play with that in mind. What if we lived out the Christian life like dearly loved children of God, like Christ has risen, then we are forgiven and justified in him? What would it mean to live like that every single day? Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful that we can draw near to you. That we are your dearly loved children. And you receive us with all of our sins. Lord, you see us as forgiven and righteous. Lord, if there is someone here who has not yet put their trust in you as their Savior, Lord, I pray that they would come talk to me at the end of the service and, and that we would be able to, to discuss, Lord, uh, what it means to have faith in you and your work. Help us this week to live out our convictions, to live out our faith in you as dearly loved children. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Grace and peace to you. Have a great day. Have a great week. Thanks for being here.